All right, Alexander, let's uh, talk about what is going on in Ukraine. Let's, uh, let's do an update on, uh, on the situation on the ground. What is going on in Bakhmut? What is going on in, in the Kharkiv area, in the Zaporozhye area? A lot of, a lot of different fronts and, and fighting. That is, that is still taking place, even though a lot of it was, uh, was, uh, was dominated last week. There was a lot more talk about the, the political stuff, the diplomatic stuff with the Munich Security Council and stuff like that. So the fighting on the ground was a bit overshadowed, but we've got fighting on the ground. We've got uh, also the appearance. It may look like we've got the appearance of long, long-range missiles or longer or longer-range missiles, which struck out at Mariupol and and Donetsk and other areas inside Russia. Though the Russian Ministry of Defense they claimed that uh, their air defense took out those missiles, but. Maybe it's a sign that Ukraine has some some longer range missiles. I don't know. Um, perhaps, and uh, then we can talk about the the political and uh, geopolitical situation. Um, the Munich Security Council wrapped up. We had uh, we did a video uh, that we talked about the Chinese visit to to Russia. But there's a lot more going on Absolutely. as well. We had Biden Absolutely. in Poland and Biden in Kiev and Maloney in Kiev, the Italian uh, prime minister. Lots going on. But let's start with, with the situation. Yeah, the let's start with the military situation. Well, can I just say, I mean, the most interesting thing in some ways was that uh, there's been this enormous row um, about, with, you know, about uh, the fighting in Bakhmut within the Russian side between Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner organization and the Russian defense ministry. And it's been about ammunition. And um, I, I've discussed this on my own channel. I'm not going to repeat what I said before. Um, Prigozhin seems to be rowing back a bit today. He says that he is getting the ammunition that he wanted. But what was revealing to me is that the defense ministry, the Russian defense ministry, talked about the quantities of ammunition that they're supplying, specifically to the Wagner Group. And over a 48-hour period, they supplied the Wagner Group with 10,000 rounds of artillery ammunition. Now, that is more, twice as much, as the entire Ukrainian army uses in a day. So, that's just the Wagner Group getting double the amount of ammunition that the entire Ukrainian army expends in a day. So that gives you some idea of the discrepancy in firepower. And that, for me, was by far the most important and revealing fact about this quarrel. I mean, the quarrel itself, I'm suspecting, a rumble on and on, but it's an internal Russian matter. I don't think we should devote too much time to it. In Bakhmut, it's clear that the Russian encirclement is continuing. And it's clear also that what the Russians are trying to do is that they're not just focused on taking Bakhmut itself. There's large numbers of Ukrainian troops, not just in Bakhmut, but in and around Bakhmut, trying to resist the Russians there. Um, I counted, last time I counted, I counted 30 brigade groups. Now, I accept that most of these are probably at very reduced levels, but we are talking about a very significant number of Ukrainian troops in and around Bakhmut. 
a reasonable guess, perhaps about 30,000. And the Russians are trying to encircle and bring all of these troops in the bag. Now, it's complicated. It's slow. The Russians apparently have now said that they're either captured or are in the process of capturing another important strategic village called Berkhova. Um, the, they've got two sort of pincers moving and one coming from the north, one coming from the south towards a town called Chasov Yar. If these two pincers close, then perhaps they'll be able to bring all these 30,000 troops in Bakhmut. They get them in the bag. And in the meantime, fighting is going on now very much inside Bakhmut itself. By some estimates, something like half the town is already under Russian control. So Russia's making progress in Bakhmut. Incredibly, astonishingly, the Ukrainians are still sending reinforcements there, which does seem most illogical and is contrary to the advice, let's remember, that the Pentagon has been giving them. But that is what they're doing. Now, battle fighting is going on at the same time along two other fronts. One is in the north, and it's this is an extensive area. It includes towns, two towns called Kremenaya and Svatovo, which the Russians control, and Liman, which the Ukrainians recaptured back in the autumn, and further north, a place called Kupiansk on the Oskol River, which the Ukrainians also recaptured during their Kharkov offensive in the, in the autumn. Well, it's clear that the Russians are now pushing back all, all across this area, and it does seem as if they have a real plan to try to recapture Kupiansk and possibly Liman as well. But it's difficult to know exactly what the Russians are intending because some Russian journalists, reporters, frontline reporters, are coming out and saying, well, it looks as if these advances are not intended as a, you know, some kind of great offensive against Ukraine. But it's basically to stabilise Russian positions in this area, to push Ukraine back to the Oskol River, not, in other words, to recapture places like Izium and um, Balaklia, those towns east, west of the Oskol River, which Ukraine recaptured in the autumn, but basically to strengthen Russian lines there. And in the south... We've also had fighting, and most of it seems to be around a place, a town called Vugladar. Very difficult to, Ugladar, very difficult to get a sense of what's going on in Ugladar. Each side claims to be making advances there. My impression is that, again, it's largely in stalemate, but the situation does look as if the Russians are sending reinforcements to their forces in Ugladar. 5,000 men have been spoken about. And I think sooner or later the Russians will capture Ugladar. It may take a while to happen, but that seems to be, I think, the objective. The important point to understand is that nowhere except in Bakhmut does there seem to be definite signs of a concerted Russian offensive. These events in Ugladar and in the north look like they're basically tidying up exercises. The main offensive is in Bakhmut, 
And all of these forces that the Russians have mobilized, these hundreds of thousands of men, they're still training, they're still re-equipping, they're still, they're still not being committed to the actual battle. The fighting is still going on with the original formations that the Russians committed to the war right at the start of the war in February last year. So we are not yet seeing the big Russian offensive that people are talking about. And there's been suggestions that what the Russians are going to do is that they're going to take Bakhmut, perhaps capture the hills west of Bakhmut, improve their positions in Vugladar and in the north, and then wait for whatever counteroffensive Ukraine launches, break that, and then maybe we'll see a bigger Russian offensive in the summer. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole winter offensive, Russia never said they were going to do a winter offensive. This has all no. been projected no. on Russia by... Yeah, absolutely. By, the, by Ukraine, by, by the collective West media. I mean, they've been the one that have been, that have been talking about this, this winter offense. I mean, we, we don't know. We don't know. But it no. doesn't seem like Russia's in a hurry to, to do anything no. except focus in on Bakhmut. And I was go, I was, that, was, that was the point that I was going to make. This is pretty much still Wagner's show. I mean, yes. they're pretty yes. much the group that's, that's engaged in Bakhmut. Absolutely. That's exactly right. Again, and they've been there, remember, since the summer. I mean, you know, this isn't, again, fresh forces committed to the battle. None of these big new Russian forces that are assembling around the battlefields have been committed to this to this war. Now, I have to say this. I mean, there were two people who were sceptical about the whole winter offensive idea. One was Lieutenant Colonel Alex Vashinin. He said that if the Russians were wise... They wouldn't think about taking any offensive actions until all their troops, their new troops, had been fully retrained and re-equipped. And he was saying way back, I think, in November, that that wouldn't happen before March. And he predicted that, you know, the Russians wouldn't take any big offensive action before March. And it was Brian Boletic has also been saying the same thing. Uh, and I think those people have been vindicated. The Russians continue to wage attrition war against Ukraine. They continue to grind down the Ukrainians along the front lines with this enormous artillery strike. They're building up their forces all around Ukraine. They're incrementally taking territory, but they don't seem to be interested in any big arrow offensives at the moment. They're probably waiting for the Ukrainians to throw it, to throw their hastily equipped and hastily trained reservists into battle. Ukraine is very short of troops now. We've been seeing these desperate mobilization initiatives that Ukraine is engaged in. And once that's out of the way, well, the Russians can do whatever they choose to do. So that seems to be the Russian tactics. And at the moment, I think that the Russians are pretty confident. I mean, we saw those speeches that Putin gave over the last couple of hours um, in the, the Federal Assembly address. He gave another speech at Luzhniki before, you know, a large crowd of people. My impression was that he looked pretty confident, and I get the sense that the Russians feel overall that things are going very much their way. Now, you did mention 
this question of long-range missiles hitting Mariupol and other places. I think this is we're going to see more and more of this. Um, uh, uh, the, the U.S. is providing um, Ukraine with um, these new missiles, which are basically a glide bomb attached to a rocket, which will be fired from a high Mars missile. Uh, there were some suggestions about two weeks ago that some of these have already been supplied to Ukraine. I suspect that they probably have been. Quite possibly we're seeing them being used. I think that the Russians fully expect Ukraine to get all of this kit, probably eventually attack of missiles and all that, despite the fact that the US is so short of those things. The Russians will absorb the blow and they'll just press on with their offensive. They've shown that they have the ability to do that, and I'm sure that that's what they will do. And in the meantime, their air defence system is getting more advanced and getting stronger. Yeah, what do you make of this? Uh, there was a political article which said the West still doesn't know what winning looks like in Ukraine. And buried in the in the middle of the article, it talks about how CIA Director Burns had urged Zelensky uh, to make as much battlefield headway as quickly as he could because the scale of military support could start falling off. Basically, it was Burns telling Zelensky, you know, you guys better better make progress quick or else or else military aid is is, is going to is going to get cut off. And, yes. and this this is what we're hearing from a lot of collective West uh, leaders and, and military commanders, analysts. They are talking and they continue to talk about the the Ukraine spring offensive and how this is the most important uh, um, part of the war to date. I mean, this is it. Ukraine has to have a successful spring offensive or else. Is or that else, yeah. is that Russia's calculation as well? Just saying, OK, absolutely. Well, they're telegraphing us what they're planning to do. So we're just going to to demolish that spring offensive and that'll that'll be that. I mean, is that it sounds I mean, it like that's what Russia's preparing to do. Absolutely. I mean, this is exactly what's happening. I mean, can I just say, I mean, this is uh, uh, you, you said absolutely correctly that no Russian official has ever spoken about a winter offensive. And I, I, I actually went and I checked some time, uh, some some hours ago. I went through all of Putin's statements. All of Shoigu's statements, all of Gerasimov's statements, not that there'd be many of those. Uh, the one interview that Surovikin has given, Surovikin actually, back in September, said that there would be no offensive. <laughs> he said that he would fortify, build up reserves, grind the Ukrainians down. So the Russians have never said that they were going to go on an offensive. And they've been very, very tight-lipped about their plans. They don't talk about them. We don't really know. That's why we're all left guessing all the time. Whereas... With Ukraine, it's talked about almost incessantly. So we now hear that, you know, there's got to be this spring offensive, that it's make or break, that unless Ukraine can break through the Russian lines in Zaporozhye, maybe, or, you know, in the north or somewhere, and make some big gains, it's all over. We've seen Borrell talking about the fact we've got to find ammunition, we've got to find tanks. And by the way, Ukraine asked for 300 tanks, six to 700 infantry fighting vehicles, 500 howitzers, self-propelled howitzers, 
It's not got anything like, nowhere close to any of those systems that it said it needed for an offensive. Its training systems have been incredibly hurried. I mean, you know, I just was reading yesterday that the Ukrainians have just completed training on Bradley vehicles, which just arrived in Germany about a week ago. So, I mean, you know, what kind of training? I mean, you know, it, 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 the whole thing seems utterly rushed. And, you know, it, it looks like it's all based now on hope. It's becoming increasingly reckless. And I, I think the Politico article is right. I think Burns probably did say that to the Ukrainians. And I definitely think that there is no clear conception of how to achieve victory in this war. Remember, the Rand Corporation said in that report that there is no route to achieving victory in this war for Ukraine. Ukraine has no pathway to victory. And um, Biden comes along, he visits Ukraine, he visits Warsaw, he makes two speeches. And, you know, apart from all the old stale cliches, there's nothing there that remotely gives any clue of a plan, any idea of how the war ends. It's just cliches and sound bites and things like that. But anybody looking to the President of the United States or to his officials for some sort of steer as to what they think should happen isn't going to get it because they don't come up with anything. I have to say, I, I, I read Biden's two speeches. The one in the one in in Kiev, if it was a speech, the one in Kiev, you know, his comments in Kiev, his comments in Warsaw, his speech in Warsaw. And it was it was like trying to grasp water. I mean, it was so completely lacking in substance that it was just impossible to see that there was any real plan there. And I don't think these people have a plan. I think their plan is to wait and hope that something will happen in Moscow and keep supporting Ukraine. And quite possibly it is the case, because we're now hearing this from so many sources, that sometime in the summer the flow of weapons will run out because there's less and less to send. And the militaries all across NATO, not just in the United States, are now saying that, you know, we've reached the point now where we just can't go on supplying Ukraine with weapons in that kind of way. Yeah, that's what I've been calling for a while now, the hope strategy. The hope that's strategy. their strategy right now is, is the hope strategy. But there is there there is a, a type of of logic that they're trying to piece together in this hope strategy. And I think the logic, or at least what they're trying to sell us, which is kind of something like, well, they're, they're, they're taking an old concept, an old narrative, and they're just kind of recycling it again, which is that Russia is running out of ammo and weapons. But this time they're saying that it's China that is going to, uh, to provide Russia with the ammo and the weapons yeah. that Russia needs to continue fighting the war. So yes, it's it's this hope that doesn't yes. go away that Russia no. is running out of weapons. Boris Johnson was speaking in Parliament yesterday or, or two days ago, and he came out and said, he said, Russia is running out of weapons. That's what he told yes. all of Parliament. Yes. They're running out of weapons. They're running out of yes. missiles. And yes. it seems like people, at least the people in Parliament, they, they believe it. 
They really, yeah. they are clinging on to this running out of weapons narrative, yes. which is an old narrative. But before it was North Korea providing the, the weapons or selling the weapons to Russia, then it was the Iranian drones. Now it's China. And so the hope strategy is, is that Russia eventually, in six months, in a year, in two years, in three years, eventually Russia's going to run out of weapons. Yeah. Can we keep Ukraine fighting until Russia runs out of weapons? I mean, that's I, 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 I try to piece it together. That's the only conclusion I can come up with. Yes, I completely agree with that. And now, by the way, there was a long piece and a huge article in the Financial Times desperately trying to find out whether, in fact, Russia can sustain the war. And they were going through all the various reasons and factors why perhaps it could, perhaps it couldn't. But in the end, even that article, and that's the Financial Times, which is, you know, full on neocon publication now, nowadays, even it couldn't quite bring itself to admit that this was actually going to happen. But you're absolutely right. That's what they're hoping for. But, you know, at the same time that they're hoping for it, and by the way, on missiles... The first reports, the first claims about the Russians running out of missiles, I read them in March, March of last year. You know, we're out, that was a year ago. So, I mean, you know, they, I, I remember reading in, in the Daily Telegraph in March that, you know, they were running out of missiles. And soon after, they said that they couldn't launch more missiles. The Russians were running out of missiles and they couldn't make any more because the engines for these missiles were made in Ukraine. So because Ukraine wasn't providing these engines to put inside these missiles, which the Russians were then going to launch against Ukraine itself, well, that would mean that the Russians were going to run out of missiles. And, you know, I've read articles like this. They've been going on about this story for ages. And the same with artillery. You know, Russians are going to run out of artillery rounds, run out of tanks, run out of infantry fighting vehicles. And, of course, it never happens. And, but that is the hope, that except, of course, if they're really afraid that China is going to come to Russia's aid, if they really believe that, then surely they must realise that that strategy is hopeless because if, if Russia really does run out of weapons but the Chinese are going to step in and provide them and China's industrial capacity is greater than that of the US and Europe combined. Well, what hope is there then? But they don't draw the conclusion that they should from that. Yeah, they're, they're, they're stuck in this Russia is a gas station masquerading as a country mentality. It's 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 been... It's been ingrained in, in in their mind. It's been so internalized over so many decades that I don't think they can break free of, uh, of that thinking. And I think it just baffles them that Russia actually can make missiles and ammo and stuff like that. They, 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 they refuse to believe it. And so well, it's North Korea, it's Iran, now it's China. That's where they're going to get it from. If we can just starve Russia off from China, then we've won. That's why you have Blinken coming out and saying... I'm 100% sure that Ukraine's going to win. That's why you had uh, Kalas, the Estonian prime minister, say the same thing. 100% Ukraine's going to win. They believe that the key, the, the secret sauce to all of this is just isolate Russia from getting weapons from China and it's game over. As long as we can sustain the Ukraine military to keep on sending their, their soldiers to the front line. 
If we can just keep Ukraine sending recruits to the front line for the next six months or the next year, then Russia will be will be done. It'll be over. That's that's yeah. how they're, they're they're calculating this. And, Absolutely. And I mean, I just think it's it, it's it, it just carries over from the thinking of the shock in our sanctions, which is that Russia is makes nothing, does nothing. It's just a gas station. Exactly. It, that, that's, well, that's, that's right. where this all originates from. Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing is now there's a massive hunt, apparently, to try and stop imports of semiconductors into Russia. I was just reading about this in the Financial Times, looking around to try and choke off imports of semiconductors to Russia. Russia will import semiconductors from the Chinese. It's not got a problem for them. And I've already discussed semiconductors and production of semiconductors in Russia many times. I'm not going to go over that. But you're absolutely right. They are stuck they're stuck on these themes. I mean, again, I was reading a long series of pieces in the Daily Telegraph that Russians are running out of the necessary technologies, the kit to do all of this. And, you know, again, I remember at the start of last year, after the sanctions were imposed, when the sanctions didn't level the crater the Russian economy immediately, predictions that the Russian economy was going to implode in June, <laughs> this is going to be the month where it was going to run out of spare parts. And June came and went. And in fact, the Russian economy began an industrial surge, which continues. But they don't want to see that. They can't see that. They can't acknowledge that. Because if they acknowledge it, then uh, 40 years, 30 years of talking about the country being the gas station, which doesn't make anything. Something which, as you absolutely rightly say, they've internalised and has become hardwired to them. That is something that would be proved to be untrue. And they can't face it. <laughs> because, because if they do face it, if it turns out that Russia isn't a gas station, it does have industrial and technological capacities greater than they imagined then, of course, the whole Neocon project collapses at its first post. It's already failed in the Middle East. If it fails in Russia, then it's failed completely. And that isn't something that they can acknowledge or face up to. And that's why they're in denial about it, as ideologues always are. Yeah. OK, um, let's close out the video, maybe talk about some of the the political, geopolitical uh, news. Yeah, uh, I mean, the big... About, we talked about the Munich Security Conference. We talked about uh, Putin's speech to the Federal Assembly. We've talked about uh, Wang Yi's trip to Moscow. We've talked about Biden and Kiev and Poland. Uh, there was there was Maloney, who made a trip to, to Kiev as well. There was uh, Putin's uh, big speech at... Uh, uh, it wasn't his speech. He showed up to the big yeah. rally at uh, yeah, the Luzhniki Stadium. Um, I think, you know, if someone saw the videos of Luzhniki, they would understand the the massive level of support for for the Putin government and and, and for this uh, this uh, special military operation. I mean, all you have to do is see a video of of a sold out stadium, and you understand that uh, the, the the breaking of Russia has completely failed. The sanctions policy the, the the trying to get people to turn against uh, against the Putin government it's completely failed 
Absolutely. All you have to do is look at a video of that of that rally, yeah. and, and someone yeah. understands. I don't think there'd be a politician in the U.S. that could that could sell out a stadium the size no. of Hluzhniki. Uh, I don't. I don't think that no. would be possible. But um, no. any other geopolitical no. I mean, or well, the, political the, news to to discuss? I mean, the other the other big event is that you know they're now trying to put together some kind of a resolution in the General Assembly, the UN General Assembly, and they're finding it very difficult because apparently. Uh, leaders from the global south are not keen on this resolution at all and apparently it was intended to be a, basically a rehash of the original resolutions that were put forward a year ago but they've had to be watered down in order to attract any kind of support at all and this is becoming apparently something of an embarrassment altogether and on top of that the Chinese have proposed to the Security Council, the UN Security Council, uh, and they've been the Chinese, the Russians have also joined. They're putting up, put, making demands for a resolution in the Security Council about the Nord Stream pipeline attacks. Now you're not getting any reporting about this in the Western media, but again, the fact that. The meetings of the Security Council that were supposed to be discussing these this Chinese-Russian proposals about the investigating the Nord Stream attacks, those meetings have been repeatedly postponed, which again makes me think that the West is finding it very difficult to hold support from non-aligned countries together on the Security Council itself. Of course, the West can always veto a resolution in the Security Council. The United States, Britain and France have the veto power. They won't want to be put in a position where that happens, where a resolution, a draft resolution, receives nine votes and the US, France and Britain have to veto it. That would be very embarrassing indeed. But the fact, as I said, that there's been these repeated postponements suggests that there's a possibility, and I suspect there's a huge amount of arms twisting and bribing and pressure and threats and all kinds of things going on in the background to make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah. We, we also have, real quick, we have the, uh, the EU failing to, to agree you on know, a 10th sanctions package. Yes. They'll get, they'll they'll get the sanctions package, but that's get, also been crumbling. And, and the EU, we talked about this about a week. We talked about this about a week and a half ago. That the EU is also now openly admitting that uh, there was no three hundred billion, and the only thing that they could uh, confiscate from Russian assets is something around thirty, thirty-five, or thirty-seven billion. And they're very, yeah, they're they're disappointed and shocked. You know, they're they're like we we can't find any of this. 300 billion and they're looking for it everywhere now yeah, and they're open yeah. openly admitting this now and yes. when we when yes. we reported on this i believe it was just a bloomberg article that came out but now yeah. it's it's out there in the open absolutely i mean it, 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 it's a fail on every level why are they bothering with the 10th package i mean the only thing that biden came up with when he was in um warsaw he was talking about the we another another american sanctions package why I mean, it's not as if all the other nine have succeeded. <laughs> I mean, so why go on for a tenth? I mean, uh, Charles Michel, who's the 
um, European Council president has actually said, you know, that, you know, they've run out of things to sanction. So why go on with this charade of coming up with sanctions and sanctions and still more sanctions? All that it's doing is exposing their weakness. It's not making it, it's not impressing anybody. It's not scaring anybody. But of course, they go, they go on doing it because if they stop doing it, they'd have to admit that the whole sanctions thing has been a failure and they can't bring themselves to do that either. So they go on with sanctions packages, more and more countries becoming increasingly sceptical. Orban is openly critical about this, but one gets the sense that behind the scenes, others also have their doubts. But this show still has to go on the road. They still have to go on piling on more sanctions, even though nobody believes any longer that these sanctions are going to work. And the shock in all sanctions, the seizure of the Russian central bank's reserves, that failed. Now, the, remember, the, Feder the Federal Reserve Board and the European Central Bank have actually said that if they'd been consulted about this, they'd have opposed it. And they were cut out. They weren't informed that the sanctions on the Russian Central Bank were going to be imposed. And it seems that Western banks weren't told about it either. So keeping it secret in that way, clearly, in the end negated the effectiveness of the sanctions because it meant that since they weren't going to discuss it with the Fed and the ECB and with the Western banks, they didn't know where this money was. But they had to go forward with it. They had to go forward with it. As politicians, so as politicians, they had to go forward with it. They didn't want to exactly. listen to anybody else. No, exactly. Yeah. So, of course, the Russians... Because obviously the Russians had been prepared for this in some way, were able to um, transfer the money in some way. We don't know how. But as I said, the fact is, if two or three months before, when the sanctions were first being discussed, it had been, you know, the, the banks had been on, on side, probably it wouldn't have happened. Probably they would have got their hands on the money. But they knew that the banks opposed it. They knew that the ECB and the uh, Fed opposed it. So, that, so the result was the sanctions failed. And by the way, the Russians have also recently said that their alternative to SWIFT is now getting more and more foreign partners involved as well and that they expect that um, in other countries around the world, and they've named a few, it'll soon be possible to use mere cards <laughs> and all those things. So, you know, the, the whole thing has failed at so many different levels that it's difficult to even discuss the idea of this. Um, it's, but, you know, you carry on, you still go on, you still press on with your UN General Assembly resolutions, you still talk about... Um, you still talk about more sanctions, you still talk about all of those things. And you hope, you keep your fingers crossed, that the Russians are going to run out of ammunition, tanks, airplanes, bombs, shells, people. Um, the Chinese, the North Koreans won't come to their rescue. They won't be able to have the semiconductors. They run out of washing machines to ply them out of. And somehow or other, the gas station will implode upon itself. And that's all they have. Yeah.
in the real world, the final thought is in the world that I live in, <laughs> Ursula would be fired, Morel would be fired, Michelle would be fired, Newland would be fired, Sullivan would be fired, Blinken would be fired. All these people would be fired. Fired. They're not elected officials. They would all be fired because they have done an absolute terrible, terrible job. And 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 the foreign assets is, is case in point. Yes. Because they didn't seek the advice of experts, because they didn't want to hear what the experts were going to tell them, which was going to run contrary to what their emotions, their hysteria and hatred was pushing them to do. They said, you know what, let's just do this in secret without without consulting yeah. with the Fed and with the central bank and with the bankers who we know are going to tell us this is stupid. Don't do it. Don't seize the foreign assets. Don't close SWIFT. Don't do any of this stuff. They knew what they were going to hear from them. And they said, I don't want to hear it. I know best. I'm Ursula. I know best. I'm Blinken. I know best. Sanction, seize assets. We'll deal with what they have to say later because they have all of this, this hysteria and emotion and hatred in them. And they had to do it. And it's been a complete disaster. A complete Absolutely. disaster. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you're quite right. And of course, they're not going to be sacked. <laughs> they're going to be promoted, if anything. I mean, you can be absolutely sure that Ursula is going to be prepared for higher and greater things eventually, and all the others as well, because that's unfortunately the iron law in the West today. Uh, in order to rise, you must fail. And um, there are some, there is some pushback. Marcus Sorda, who is the, Zorda, who is the um, Minister President of Bavaria, which is the biggest and richest um, uh, region in Landa in Germany. He's now come out and criticised Baerbock, and he said that Scholz needs to get Baerbock under control. But Scholz isn't going to get Baerbock <laughs> under control. And, of course, again, Baerbock, whatever happens, you can be absolutely sure that, you know, some important posts uh, await her. I, I'm going to make a guess. I put my money on her becoming president of the European Commission. When Ursula von wants to move on, you put Baerbock in her place. <laughs> if, if, if there is a, a commission left by the time Ursula is done with it. Well, that's that, that of course. <laughs> if, if, she, if she's not the end of the EU, then a Baerbock uh, commission would definitely be the end well, of absolutely. the European yeah. Union. For this, there's no doubt. Yeah, Absolutely. No doubt about it. All right. Uh, yeah. Thedurad.locals.com. We are on Rockfin as well. And go to the Durad shop, 10% off. Use the code. Good day. Take care.